I just want to thank Emily and all of the, the whole praise team and all of those who have led us uh, this morning in our, our worship. If you do not already have the sheet, the handout sheet that is for the message today, uh, they, they were available back in the back, but you may not have picked one up. And if you would like to have one, it has the text that I'm going to be reading in just a moment and the notes that I'm going to be following for our message. If you just hold up your hand, someone from back there will, will uh, bring, bring a copy of that to you, conveniently punched with three holes so that if you are utterly retro, you can actually put it into a, uh, a three-ring binder and so forth. One of the reasons that I'm making the mistake of reading the scripture this morning, I know all of you recognize the fact that there should be someone else reading the scripture this morning, but I'm doing it because actually this text is, is as much the sermon as anything else. I'm going to make some observations about the text, but the, this passage of scripture from Isaiah 52 verse 7 through Isaiah 53 verse 12 is one of the truly great pieces of writing, shall we say, words, proclamation, uh, exclamation in all of literature. Very, very powerful and influential uh, over so many years. And, and probably if, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you may not have any uh, line of reference for the text, but, but um, if you are a Christian, you have, have no doubt heard it and even thought about it in relationship to understanding Jesus. Because I think almost all Christians, when we read, especially after we get past the first little section of the, of the text and get into the part where it talks about the servant, we automatically, at least I do, I'll just speak for myself, automatically hear Jesus in it. And that's not inappropriate. That, that's, that's, that's all right. But part of what I want us to do is just to listen to it as a text. In, in fact, in imagination, if you can, put yourself back, 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 back. In fact, to get from Jesus back to the time that this was originally written by Isaiah, you have to go back something like six, nearly six centuries. So there's a lot of time in there that you can find a spot to sit down and to listen to these words. When you don't have that story of Jesus to give you an automatic interpretation of, of the text. The situation of the text is in the time of the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people. After the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed and they've been taken into Babylon. And uh, it's gone mixed reviews. There have been some opportunities. Certainly the, the community has, has thrived. But uh, they, they have felt so alienated. But there's been a process of of rethinking their whole faith, the whole community that was there. And it's been a powerful time bringing together the, the, the writings that became, and they become during this time, considered to be scripture. They didn't really have the concept of that much before. And as one reads the aftermath of the Babylonian exile, one of the great moments is Ezra coming to Jerusalem and reading the scripture as scripture. 
in the hearing of the people, evidently for the first time. It's a great event. But these words of poetry, Hebrew poetry, put into rather very pedestrian English are... um, are so wonderful. They can be translated, it's, it's poetry. The, the words have multiple layers of meaning. And so it's, it pays off for you to read it in different translations. But this, this is my own uh, translation. We're, we start in a section of the, of the prophecy that is proclaiming God's victory. And we go into a section that begins in chapter 52, verse, verse 13 that speaks of God's servant. And it's one of the most distinctive passages in scripture uh, that one can find. So listen, if you would, and just let yourself go back wherever you can into that time and listen to the words that come. How lovely over the mountains are the footsteps of one bringing news, proclaiming peace, bringing news of good, Proclaiming deliverance, announcing to Zion, your God reigns as king. Your watchmen's voice, they lift one voice. They they shout for joy together. For before their very eyes, they're watching the return of Yahweh to Zion. Yahweh being the name of God as it is in Hebrew. So start your joyful shouts together, all Jerusalem that was reduced to ruins. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart! Depart, get out of there. Don't touch any of its unclean things. Go out from its midst to purify yourselves, since you're bearing the vessels of Yahweh. For you won't leave in great haste, and you won't be fleeing when you march. For Yahweh will march before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Look, My servant will succeed. He'll be high, lifted up, greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled over you, so his appearance was disfigured, unlike a man, and his form unlike a human. So he'll astonish many nations, and kings will shut their mouths, because of him, for they'll behold things never before told them, and they'll ponder what they've never, ever heard. Who indeed has believed what we have reported? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He grew up in his presence like a sprouting sapling, but as if rooted in drought-stricken earth. There was no notable shape to him, no majesty. We looked at his appearance and had no desire for him. People despised 
and rejected him. A man who suffered and was afflicted with disease. Like one from whom people turned their faces, he was despised. And we, we considered him worthless. But surely, he was carrying our pains and was loaded with our sorrows. Yet we ourselves considered him stricken, beaten down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our guilty wrongs. He suffered the discipline that was to bring us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. Then Yahweh laid on him the wrongdoing that belongs to us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led along to the slaughter like a lamb. And just as the sheep is silent when it's sheared, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppressive judgment, he was swept away. And who will even think of his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living. The fatal blow from my people's wrongdoing struck him. His grave was placed among the wicked as though he were a rich oppressor in his death, though he treated no one with violence, nor did he speak with deceit. Yet Yahweh desired to crush him in weakness when he makes his very life an offering for sin. He'll see offspring and prolong his days. <clears throat> and Yahweh's desire will thrive in his hands. Out of his life's troubles, he'll see clearly and he'll be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous, and he himself will bear their wrongs. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the, the, among the great, and he'll divide the gains of struggle with the strong, because he laid bare his own life to suffer death and was numbered with transgressors. He himself carried the sin of many and became advocate for those transgressors. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been for a while here in a journey about God's ways of revelation, especially in the Old Testament. Following that along, 
journeying, start, we started with creation and then went to a stra- sort of a strange place, the first exile, sort of. Adam and Eve, I guess, were the first exiles from Eden, and, but then Cain and taking up the story of Cain and his exilic wanderings and the way God cared for him even in that. Then to Abraham, who's called to leave behind his home and family and go to a land that he's never known. But all of it is aimed at God, through him, blessing all the families of the earth. To Moses, at the time of the the book of Deuteronomy, as he looks at the law and says, the heart of it is that you love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and strength, because the Lord, Yahweh, is one. Down to David, who's a king and all of that, and wants to build a place for God to, to dwell like he has a palace. But God says, I, did I ever ask for a, for a temple to dwell in? I, did I ask for a house, a fixed house to dwell in? Rather, God's going to make a house for David, and that becomes a, prof, a promise a prophetic promise like that given to Abraham, that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So there's going to be a house, namely a succession of anointed kings to sit on David's throne. Then that promise move it becomes the house of David, and in a sense the house of God moving through, through time and through space and continuing right on down into the time, of course, of the New Testament. And so, all of these stages are steps along the way as God reveals himself, God opening God's self to be known. Like the passage that we used as our call to worship uh, this morning, that God in the past times is through many different ways, has spoken to us through his prophets, but now speaks to us through, through a son. That, that understanding that flows through all of the scriptures and comes to that expression in Hebrews is basic to what, what we're doing. Always the people who are understanding what God is doing and understanding, seeing God, are <laughs> us limited people, broken people, People who are, as we find in the descriptions in our, in our text for today, transgressors, who are weak, who are sickly, who are limited in so many ways. And so God spoke in many ways, as, as Hebrews says. And those stories, we've only touched on a few of them along the way in the, the, the course of these, these messages. Those stories then are told and retold and then written down and brought together and they become scripture. That's what scripture means. It means something written down. They become scripture and become authoritative. But what, when that actually comes to kind of its fruition, it's a long process evidently for, all, for what we know about it, but when it comes to its fruition, it's in the time that Israel kind of has gone into this period of, as they say, hitting bottom. It's in exile. The northern ten tribes are basically gone. Most of what the traditional life 
of Israel was. Oh yes, there are people are still around who can identify themselves with those ten tribes, but as a people together, they've been taken into an exile never to return. And the Assyrian Empire has brought in people from other parts that they're wanting to treat like they do they're the people of Israel, and they've resettled them there. And so the people have become a mixed group of people, both pagans and worshipers of God in, that, in, uh, in the northern tribes. And then Judah, that thought itself so strong, and it survived all of that, Still, we listen to the stories as we go through 2 Kings, and it's just a spiral downhill with bright spots, Hezekiah, Josiah, a few others, but mostly downhill, sometimes precipitously downhill, so that they ultimately are taken into, into exile, Babylonian exile. All the leaders of the whole people are taken away. And a few are left behind, at least as it's described in Second Kings, to uh, trim the vines, kind of we might say to keep the switch the lights on and so forth, that kind of thing. Just to trim the vines, keep things barely going. But basically, the kingdom, the temple, the structures of sacrifice, the structures of society, all of those are swept away and the people are marched off to Babylon. And in that time of Babylon, some new voices arise. One of the most famous, of course, would be someone like Ezekiel, who sees visions of God's throne and all of that. But one that we don't focus on because his identity is kind of merged into another book, if we can say it that way, is the voice of Isaiah of the exile that writes in, in what we have as Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 that describes that particular time and the people of that particular time around 540 B.C., whereas the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C. And before that was the time of the original Isaiah. So in Isaiah 40 to 55, it's no longer the message of that original Isaiah of repent because God is going to bring judgment upon the people. Just read Isaiah chapter 1. But then go to Isaiah chapter 40, and now it is comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquities are pardoned. She's received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. And so a new time has come, and this voice of Isaiah, it becomes part of the book of Isaiah, that we sometimes call Isaiah of the exile. He, he calls the people that are there in that exile to hope and to renewal. Now that exile was a hard, hard time for Israel, and it brought a sharp change of perspective. They had been on their own. They had been a little independent kingdom. They thought of themselves almost as an empire whenever they could. They made alliances. They tried to play the politics back and forth. And you follow that story through, through Second Kings and so forth. But now all of that has been swept away. And they have to think about who are we really? And they realize that it is their relationship with God that gives them their identity. 
And Isaiah calls them to recognize that, to, to, to take that inside themselves fully. And so that sharp perspective comes about on what it is that went wrong, how they turned away from God and so forth. And to come to hope in Yahweh, to trust in Yahweh's grace, to trust in the fact that he, that he is always the creator. That's the story of the creation becomes popular in written form so that people can read about it. And Isaiah talks about creation over and over again through the course of these, these chapters because God is recreating things. And so the first part of our reading today has, speaks so much of that, that spirit of God, God renewing his people, bringing them forth out of exile and so forth. But to fast forward a little bit that comes, goes outside of our text, when you, when you see what mm, actually happened, Isaiah was predicting the coming of Cyrus the Great, the Persian who would overthrow Babylon and bring renew, make it possible for there to be renewal of Israel. And all of that happened just as Isaiah, as Isaiah predicted. And Cyrus allowed the people to go back to, to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and even financed it and, and so forth. But, hmm, in spite of Isaiah's words, not many really chose to go back, especially at first. And even a century, just about a century after the time of Isaiah of the exile, you have the story of Nehemiah. What's the condition of Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah? Do you remember the story? It's about rebuilding the walls. They have to, it's in shambles. The whole place has not been built up. It's, it's utterly vulnerable. And it's only after I, Nehemiah comes and rebuilds a hundred years after this that we have Ezra coming as, as a great teacher of the law, but as also a, a, an official of the Persian Empire. And he reads the Torah to them so that he carries these two roles of a, of a role within the Persian Empire, but also one who brings the law of God to people. And in that general time, you also have the story of Malachi, or the prophecies of Malachi, just upbraiding, condemning the corruption that is going on in the community as they try to get back on their feet. It went on, and one thing after another, after another, centuries pass. By the time we get to Jesus' ministry, as I said, nearly six centuries pass. You'd think that all of these words by Isaiah would have been, uh, people would have said, oh, I've heard that before. Mm, nothing, nothing, nothing's going to happen to it. It's dead, dead in the water. I don't want to hear it anymore. But actually, well, it, of course, for some people, that may have been exactly what they thought. But there were also many people in Israel in Jesus' time who were awaiting God's return to Zion, as Isaiah said, they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. They had been thwarted, the people had been thwarted by imperial oppressive control over their lives. They had been thwarted by religious battles among themselves. 
They were struggling to understand their past, understand what it was that had happened to them and continued to happen to them. How were they who come with that message of Isaiah, your God reigns as king, why were they not a kingdom? Why did they... Why were they under the thumb of the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans now? And yet, when we come to the time of Jesus and you walk with Mary and Joseph into the temple for Jesus' circumcision and dedication in the temple, there you find people that are waiting for the consolation of of Israel, waiting for the consolation of Jerusalem, who... The the words of Isaiah echo in them, and they are expecting exactly what Isaiah wrote about. They maintained it. The the words of, of Isaiah continued to be vibrant in spite of the passage of time, in spite of so many things having gone wrong over and over again. The powerful promise of God's kingdom as you read in those first, first verses, the fact that God is going to comfort, just you start reading there and you, as, as I did, and, and you see all the things that God has done as, uh, as, as uh, Isaiah talks about it. He says, the, your watchmen, all they need to do is just watch and they'll see what's happening. God is reigning as king. They are seeing Yahweh return to Zion. So everybody get together. Lift up your joyful shouts together. All of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that was reduced to ruin. Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed uh, Jerusalem. He has bared his holy arm. not exactly the image that I would have used, and maybe I should have translated it some other way, but that's what it says. God rolls up his sleeve and bears his, his arm. In other words, I think what it means, though, of course there's the sense of a kind of power there, but it is that God himself is directly doing something. He's directly involved in the lives of his people, in comforting, in redeeming, He's bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so, so this, this hope did not die, but rather as the ages passed, as new ages came on, there were new situations. And those scriptures, that, like those, what I just read this morning, scriptures shaped New hope in for that new situation, new identity, and it kept on going, kept on going right down to Simeon and Anna in the temple when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple. But there was also with that, with the passage of time, a sense of disappointment. When you read Isaiah, it certainly sounds like it's going to happen right now, or it's happening right now. But a hundred years later, a hundred and fifty years later, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, a new conqueror comes through. 
500, a new conqueror comes through. We're getting close to 600, the Romans take over. The long disappointment. Isaiah had called out to them, as it says there in verse 11, depart, get out of there. Don't touch any of, the, of its unclean things. Go out from, from its midst to purify yourself. So depart from there, purify yourselves. You are bearing the vessels of Yahweh. You're bearing the very things that are used in the worship of Yahweh. And Yahweh is going to be with you. You won't leave in haste. This is not like the Exodus where you had to run out of Egypt. Flee. But you are, it's, it is an exodus, but it's an exodus march. And Yahweh is going to march with you. He's going to be, go before you, and he's going to be your rear guard. You're going to march back, and it's all going to be fulfilled. The return. What happened? Some came back tried to build the temple. At first they couldn't do that. They laid out the plan of the foundation, but they had so much opposition that they had to stop. They had to go back and search the archives of, of Persia to make sure that there had actually been an authorization of it and so forth. They come back. They build the temple, yeah, within the 70 years, but it's such a small temple, evidently, that people, when they saw it, that a lot of them were shouting for joy that the temple had been built, but others that had seen the Solomon's temple were weeping because it was so meager as it was. What happened? The return was slow and faced profound opposition. There was no kingdom. And when they built the temple this time, there was no great manifestation of God like with the tabernacle or like with Solomon's temple. There was no divine glory there. There was no Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. They were actually, as, as Ezra himself says, we're, we're still enslaved. We're still under their thumb, as it were. We're still in exile. And so that whole situation there and the way in which time had passed created this hmm, what would one say? You love to sing the song so to speak. You want to read those scriptures. They're so encouraging but but when? How? What's going to happen? But the thing that happens with Isaiah that's really striking and that I think is important is that right there as you're at the very height of the exaltation, Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah plants this mysterious seed. That's the next part of the text. How does Yahweh march to victory? And so suddenly, as we get into the, to verse 13 of chapter 52, God speaks. We know it's God only because he says, my. And all through here, we're going to have all of these references to people. 
my, he, you, we, and so forth, uh, that we're going to have to sort of guess at what they mean. But my servant here clearly seems to mean God's servant. And God calls attention to my servant. That's a title that's well known in the scriptures and the stories before. Abraham had been called by God, my servant. Moses was called by God, my servant. David was called by God, my servant. Especially as God was telling him, no, you're not going to build the temple. You're my servant. Israel and Isaiah is repeatedly called my servant. And we see here the idea of my servant developed as Isaiah writes about it. Sometimes it is simply Israel, it's Jacob, it's the people being renewed. But sometimes it's someone who's doing something for Israel. And as we come to it here, in this last of these major uses of my servant, here it is without a name. It's not Moses or Abraham or David. It is unnamed. It's also not even named Israel. It is here simply my servant. But it starts with this remarkable assurance. God says, look, my servant will succeed. He'll be high, lifted up, greatly exalted. But immediately it goes over sort of to the other side. Israel has been in exile and nearly destroyed. And he says, it's actually sort of like you. As many were appalled over you, so his appearance was disfigured. So that it's unlike even a, a man. It's his form unlike a human being. You could hardly recognize that he was a human being. But then immediately it takes the turn again. And we sort of get the summary of the whole picture. He'll astonish many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they'll behold things never before told them. And they'll ponder what they've never ever heard. Well, what's that going to be? In that little introduction, Isaiah sort of lays out the drama that's there. That God is going to, in his servant, bring about his victory, shall we say, as king and all of that. God reigns as king. But it has this side of woe and disfigurement. Losing even the identity as a human. And it's going to be something that nobody has ever heard of before. All the kings who know all the ways that you do things, they're going to shut their mouths because they've never been told of something like this. And then, as we go just a little bit farther, we, um, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice seems to always kind of break up here. As we go just a little bit farther, after God's introduction of the servant, <clears throat> we get a new pronoun. Who, chapter 53, verse 1. Who indeed has believed what we have reported? The we seems to be the prophet, maybe speaking for Israel, something like that. What we have reported. 
And to whom has the arm of Yahweh, God's direct involvement, God's own action, been revealed? And so it begins talking about this, whatever it is that we've reported, and this arm of Yahweh. And it uses he, evidently, the servant. The servant is the arm of Yahweh. He's the one that the people of Israel, the people of the prophet, are now seeing and realizing and telling about. He, the servant, grew up in his presence like a sprouting sapling. That's very, very nice. But rooted in drought-stricken earth. There was no notable shape to him. No majesty. We look, we, we, the prophet and all the rest looked at his appearance and had no desire for him. Again, I remind you, nobody knows about Jesus here. This is utterly without, that's 600 years in the future, 570 years in the future. He, we looked at his appearance and had no desire for him. People despised, rejected him. A man who suffered and was afflicted with disease. He's a diseased person. We considered him not even worth talking about, worthless. And so the prophet speaks in this we. He seems to be a God-punished sufferer. The opposite of God, without power, worthless. But then this new vision breaks in. A new vision that reverses the perception as somehow the prophet and the people that he's including in the we reverse their perception of him. Verse 4, but surely the pain, the physical suffering, the pain, the disease, if it's a disease, whatever it is, the sorrow that is, that's our. He was carrying our pains, loaded with our sorrows. But we saw the world in a way in which that could not be something in any way positive or of God. And so we considered him to be stricken beaten down by God. This new, that's the way we saw it, but now we realize that there must be something more. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our guilty wrongs. He suffered the discipline that was to bring us, teach us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Hmm. The prophet is healed. Israel is healed. Humans are healed. How? That doesn't make any sense. It just does, doesn't make sense. It, it, it looks terrible. It doesn't show any power. It's, it's just pain and sorrow and stricken and beaten and afflicted and pierced and crushed and wounds. 
How could it possibly heal us? It's because as the prophet unfolds, as Isaiah unfolds, it's, it's by God's work as you go on and look at, at all of this. We, 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 we had gone astray, every single one of us. And Yahweh laid on him the wrongdoing that belongs to us all. He was oppressed, afflicted, but there was no outcry. He was led along to the slaughter like a lamb, but silent as a sheep being sheared. Oppressive judgment by people swept him away. And nobody even considered his future. Cut off from the land of the living. The fatal blow from my people's wrongdoing that had brought them into, into exile struck him. And when they buried him, it was with the wicked as though he were a rich oppressor, as though he were the man of violence, as though he were speaking deceit, even though it was not the case. How is it that this is... Hmm, how is it that it's carried all the way to death? And if you don't already have in your mind the story of Jesus, if you put yourself back 10 minutes before Jesus' birth, you're shaking your head. How could it possibly? How could it possibly be? Who is this? What could this be? Yet, verse 10, Yahweh desire to crush him in weakness. When he makes his very life an offering for sin, he'll see offspring and promise days, and Yahweh's desire will thrive in his hands. That's what that introduction meant when he said he's going to succeed, he's going to be exalted, and so forth. Out of his life's troubles, he'll see clearly and he'll be satisfied by his knowledge. Yahweh's will, Yahweh's desire. Actually, it, I couldn't bring myself to translate it this way, but a most literal translated translation would be Yahweh's delight. Yahweh's delight was to crush him. Because this is the arm of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh. It is Yahweh's own involvement in the whole story. Yes, it's he out there, but not with any name. And it's Yahweh acting in all of this. Yahweh takes on those sufferings and sins and 
diseases and brokenness and troubles and sorrow. And in the crush of that comes out hope and new life. That new vision of how God works. What does it mean for Yahweh to march back to Jerusalem? To see Yahweh appearing, to see him coming. It is Yahweh, Yahweh's arm, God's arm, God's servant taking the load of our pain and wrong all the way to death. And in that process, he can set people right with God's reality, make many righteous. <sighs> but there was no likely candidate for the couple of years after Isaiah said this and told about Yahweh telling of his servant, or for the next decade. It's time for it to come about, wouldn't you think? Or the next 50 years or a hundred years or a hundred years more and on and on and on down. Centuries pass. People read this text. It's a great mystery. How can God's power be in rejection and suffering and even with the healing? How could that be God? How could that be God's kingdom? And then there comes a person who doesn't particularly teach about how to interpret Isaiah. He simply lives this story. He lives this story along with the story of Abraham and Moses and David. He brings all those stories together. He lives them and he calls on those around him to look, to listen, to hear. Can you see what's happening? Can you hear what's happening? Jesus lives them. But in all of them, he brings a new dimension because of the astonishing explicitness of the claim now that's made. The arm of Yahweh is kind of a metaphor, isn't it? it but it's Yahweh's, yes, real involvement. But now, Jesus comes as one who is the very embodiment, the incarnation of God's presence. And so he brings that new dimension to all that he's doing. But in all of it, as he lives these stories of Abraham and Moses and David and the servant, the hardest of them always is that of the servant. And you see it all the way through the New Testament. We're not going to go into any, any of that right now. But just think of the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1. That foolish, weak cross. But that is God's arm. That is God's power. That is God's wisdom in this broken world. Think of that one that... Paul tells us to think just like this. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself and take the, took the form of a slave. And being found in human likeness, he 
became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God highly exalted him. Jesus has taken in those words that God gave to Isaiah and is living them out. Look, here, my servant, God says. There you see me. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, it's always a challenge for us to read the scriptures. But some passages are both shining like a light, but also when you look at them in a, from a different angle, seem to be dark with mystery. And we pray that you will allow us to hear both sides of that, to, to think what it was like to live in the darkness of the mystery and the challenge of ever believing that the light had come on, that there was one who was not interpreting this passage, but simply being this passage. And what it implies for how your kingdom comes, how your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us, Heavenly Father, to immerse ourselves in what you have given to us and to learn from your word who you are as we look at Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing in this, in this time. Uh, would you stand? I want to read, go back toward it to the beginning of our, or near the beginning of our text and and just use some of the words there to, as our benediction for, for the day. Your watchmen, <laughs> they lift up one voice, they shout for joy together, for before their very eyes, they're watching, watching the return of Yahweh to Zion. So, start your joyful shouts together, all Jerusalem that was reduced to ruins. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all ends of earth shall see the salvation of God. Greet one another and go forth to serve.